Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the We're Golden edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. That is not a boast. We are golden. We are having our golden anniversary today. We are it's golden. Episode number 50, guys. Wow. 50 episodes. 50 are, episodes. Are you bored yet? <laughs> are you still here? <laughs> if you are still here after 50, God bless you. Yeah, because because you're going to need it. Because there's something wrong with you. <laughs> you have hung in there. But you it, are in the national security and masochism. Here, I will, I will make a, uh, an offer. If you are listening and you have actually listened to some or all of all 50 episodes, tweet at us at yes. Rational Security and we will write you back. Absolutely. We will let you know and we will thank you on the air. Is you there a hashtag for people who've listened to all 50 Golden episodes? Oldies? <laughs> <laughs> hashtag Golden Oldies. There you go. Yeah. At right. RTL Security. I like that. Okay. You'll be part of the 50 Club. Get in now because by the time we hit 100, this thing's going to be big. <laughs> Big, big, big. So big. Yeah. Uh, I, can think, I, I can think of one listener who's, who's I think, listened to all of them. I know at least one. Yeah. Yeah, 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 because he writes me every week, and um, they're very faithful. So thank you. I won't name this person because occasionally... Your mom. Writes, well, not mom. I don't think... <laughs> I tried to show my mom about podcasts, and she was so into it, and then never talked about it again. <laughs> She's like, you do this every week, and I can listen to the Diane Reem show, too? I'm like, yes. Yes, you can. Never heard anything about it again. Anyway. She is a public radio supporter, though, so good for her. Not good. that we're on public radio. Go, Mom. Yeah. Um, I'm joined, as always, by my friends Tamara Kaufman-Wittis and Ben Wittis. Hello, guys. Hello, hey. Shane. Happy New Year, guys. It's our first episode of 2016. And, um, yeah, it's not looking to be any um, less problematic and um, dangerous than 2015. You know, the year is starting off with a bang. It uh, is. The Saudi embassy in Tehran, the... H-bomb in North Korea. That's right. That's right. We're going to talk about some of that this week. Uh, we're going to be talking about Kim Jong-un and North Korea saying they tested a hydrogen bomb. Did they really do it? The Russians may have caused a blackout in Ukraine with a cyber attack. And President Obama plans to do a lot of foreign travel in his final year in office. Because things are just so bad here. He's getting out of town. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so let's start, Ben, uh, with your wordplay. Um, Kim Jong-un has you know, a hydrogen bomb. He didn't eat it but he claims to have detonated it. Right. So I was uh, actually at the climbing gym the other day with my son, and we saw this woman climbing who looked exactly like Kim Jong-un. <laughs> and I, and I, I said to Gabriel, I said, you know, hey, look, Kim Jong-un is, you know, climbing a climbing wall. And he burst out laughing because it really looked like Kim Jong-un. And then the next day, there's a nuclear test. So I'm going to let readers decide if these events are coincidental or if Kim Jong-un came to Rockville to, to do some climbing before, yeah. you know, testing the hydrogen bomb. There may be Kim Jong-un look-alike plants all over the oh, world. Yeah. Each of them with a hydrogen bomb. Uday Hussein had a double. Yeah. yeah. Why not Kim Jong-un? No, this, this woman was like... 
you know, the spitting image and sort of like that's really unfortunate. built in that kind of tanky wow. way with the pompadour haircut. Impressive. Wow. Like it was really I mean, there are many unattractive looks in the world, but Kim Jong un is really uh high up there. She could have a career. Yeah. I I mean it, when I pointed it out to Gabriel, he it was not like there was any argument about whether this person really looked like Kim Jong-un. Um, yeah, so uh, he appears to have faked a hydrogen bomb. Uh, you know, it does not seem to have, at least the initial uh, estimate seemed to suggest that it ha- did not have the yield of a real uh, thermonuclear device. Which would be, just for listeners who don't know, like potentially thousands of times larger than a traditional nuclear device. It's, a, it's orders of magnitude difference between the sort of early-style atomic bomb and a hydrogen bomb. Right. It's a, it's a big difference in, in yield, and it's measurable at a distance because these explosions of this size actually do cause seismic activity. And, and this one did. Oh, yeah. I mean, a, any underground nuclear test is going to rattle the earth a little bit. Um, but the yield seems to not be consistent with the North Korean claim, um, which is interesting. Uh, it raises the question of why North Korea, um, which has a legitimate nuclear capability, wants to inflate that capability and thus make them seem, seem smaller than they really are. Um, you know, a few months ago, we were talking about North Korea as a you know, a potential nuclear threat, you know, something with, you know, a real nuclear weapons program. And now the talk is going to be how they, well, they don't have a hydrogen bomb. Right. And, I, and I wonder if there was a sort of significant element of strategic miscalculation in, you know, in drawing the world's attention to what they don't have rather than where it already was, which was all what they do have. Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, first of all, we're not sure... Right. right. Um, so they create a degree of uncertainty. And we've seen other countries use uncertainty and ambiguity around their WMD capabilities in a very deliberate manner to deter adversaries and to generate international attention. Saddam Hussein was a master of this game, and the Iranians have done it as well over the years. So it might not have been a miscalculation. It might have been to create some muddiness um, around what their capabilities are or might be becoming. A, B, one has to ask whether the primary audience here was the international audience or whether this was more for domestic consumption. You know, we all think that this, um, that this regime uh, must be facing some challenges in terms of sustaining domestic legitimacy, despite how incredibly coercive it is. Um, but there's no doubt that it's a regime that regularly engages in activities designed to create a rally around the flag effect, and maybe this is another one. One, one person I was talking to yesterday raised an intriguing possibility, too, and I think these are all kind of going to the columns of, well, maybe, because we just don't know. It, it, it's such a hard target that we, the regime's thinking is something of a mystery. Whether or not Kim Jong-un is being told they have a hydrogen bomb when they don't really... Uh, and whether this is, in fact, perhaps something that was actually manufactured for an audience of one, namely him. So he said to his scientists, get, get me, me an H-bomb bomb. by New Year's Day right. or I or kill you. Yeah, exactly. Right? And it, it's interesting. And, I mean, what kind of prompted this person, I think, to think this is, you know, he's come in. He's been extremely aggressive. 
He's cracked down uh, on people in the inner circle. I mean, you know, he's doing firing squad by artillery cannon and all these kinds of by things. By dog. By dog, too. They do dog, too? Like, yeah. That was they? the rumor is that oh. his uncle was torn apart by dogs. Oh, God. Yeah, I thought, they, they, and they, they, I thought killed, they blew them up and then ate them, then let the dog eat them. They killed yeah. the other guy, the, the, the other guy by, by anti-aircraft missile. Yeah. Oh, with, my God. It's just amazing. But... You know, there's some, wondering if whether or not there is, you know, he has come in and said, I want this, I want this, I want that. You know, people wondered why they did the Sony hack. Like, this sort of seemed, you know, impetuous and why you're attacking Sony over a movie and you just, you know there's going to be retaliation. So <clears throat> is it possible that, uh, you know, there's something about this particular leader? It's like he wants his H-bomb and he wants it now and if you don't give it to him, and how the hell would he know if it's a hydrogen bomb or not? Although... Presumably, whether it was him trying to uh, declare an H-bomb or his scientists trying to fool him into saying that they'd done it, either of them would know that international response would attempt to verify this. So it, it, it just makes you wonder so much about what the actual information environment is like inside North Korea, even for senior officials. Yeah. Well, and, and it also makes you wonder what the strategic game plan they think they're playing is. If they have one. Well, they have something. They think they're doing something. And, you know, what what they imagine their strategy to be is very opaque from the outside. Right. I think I'm cultivating the next generation of American grand strategy. You actually are, though. (laughs) Yeah, me and Kim Jong-il. Totally, totally. You guys should should get together. You Play know. basketball. Sure. Well, Go climbing. Yeah, apparently he's at the climbing gym, so check him out. Um, okay, so let's move on to the next big Well, one of the next big stories of the week. Um, the Russians may have launched the first documented cyber attack on a power grid that caused a blackout. Wouldn't that wow, be so that's like an underappreciated big story. I think this one actually kind of is. So this, the, there's a little bit of a weird backstory here. On December 23rd, uh, a power company in western Ukraine reported that uh, they had lost power to a big part of their service area. About 700,000 homes were without power for around six hours. And then, uh, so this is right before Christmas, then on New Year's Eve comes a report that the Ukrainian government says this was caused by uh, a Russian cyber attack. And the companies had early, company had earlier said there had been interference with their system. They didn't quite specify it. Um, so it sounds a little bit like <laughs> the, the, the story kind of dropped in the middle of the holidays and it wasn't exactly clear whether it was real or not. Anyway, the fast forward to this week, uh, the CIA, the NSA, Homeland Security are all looking at samples of the malware that was recovered from this network of this, comp- uh, this power company uh, and private security companies are looking at it as well. And the conclusion that they all seem to be coming to is A, there was definitely malicious software that was found on the network. B, that malware has been documented to have been used in earlier probes, not attacks, of computer systems that regulate the power grid in the United States. There's some circumstantial evidence tying it to a known Russian hacker group. All these things kind of add up, and it looks like, yes, this may in fact be a Russian cyber attack on the grid, and it's looking more and more like the malware was probably responsible for the outage that occurred. People aren't quite going there on the record yet, but you know, privately they'll tell you a bit more. Okay, so here's my question. Why does Russia want to take right. down the power grid in this particular part of Ukraine for five or six hours? So there's a couple of theories on that. 
Um, one, one big question, too, in that was why would the Russians want to actually do this publicly and have it attributed to them at all, particularly when we believe that they've been probing our power grid, too, and if they ever took the lights out in a U.S. city, we'd probably be going to war with Russia. So in Crimea, there has been actually substantial power outages for quite some time, believed to be caused by uh, rebel groups that are fighting the pro-Russian separatist in Crimea. So it's possible that the Russians also now want to tell the Ukrainians, hey, unless you get these guys in Crimea under control who are blowing up physically, the power lines and cutting off power, just remember, we can hurt you too, and Mm -hmm. we're going to demonstrate Mm -hmm. this. The fact that it was only six hours led a couple of experts I talked to this week about this to say maybe this was the Russians sort of just kind of, you know, putting the boot on the neck but then coming right back up again and saying, look, we can not only turn the lights off, we can make everything go away too, sort of a... You know, demonstrating that the that the carrot this, and the stick, the carrot and the stick, uh, and there's still a lot technically that we don't know about how this was done, um, but it could be that it was part of this Ukrainian Crimea conflict. But I gotta say, I think there's just there's there's bigger implications to this, and if this gets to the point where everyone in the technical community is kind of, and especially if they start going on record saying we positively attribute this to the Russian government, it's the first documented and verifiable cyber attack that caused a power outage, which of course is one of those nightmare scenarios that we talk about a lot. I don't see how President Obama doesn't have to respond to this in some way, or at least that the pressure doesn't come on him to respond. Well, he responded to the North Korea Sony attack, which, granted, that's North Korea and nobody cares. And if you it was North an Korea attack on an American target. I mean, I think. If this was a deliberately chosen um, target, you know, part of the challenge here is that each incremental uh, step in Ukraine cannot generate an incremental escalation on the American and European sides. And I think part of the challenge for American policy in Ukraine has been precisely that the Russians keep kind of pinpricking in ways that don't in and of themselves justify a massive escalation. Mm -hmm. And since the U.S. is reluctant to escalate anyway, you know, they can keep getting away with it and kind of keep testing and keep extending. And this isn't, I think it actually would be very difficult for Mm -hmm. the United States to justify on the basis of this alone additional steps. I also think it's, it's worth considering what those additional steps could be. It's not an attack on us. Right. Um, Although it may be linked to attempted attacks on us. But. Right. It, cre- it, it definitely elevates the vulnerability yeah. of parts of yeah, the yeah, American yeah. infrastructure. But, it, you know, if it's presumably going to be denied or already has been denied. Right. Um, and so in the face of uh, uncertain information, you would be doing what in order to defend the integrity of a non-allied country's power grid. Do you think, though, that... Okay, no, that, I, I, that, I take your point, both your point on that. What I wonder, though, is does the president have to come out and address it, at the very least to say, yes, we're aware this happened, yes, we know that this group is linked to possible probing of our system, and here are all the things that I am doing to make sure... That that never happens here. Sure, that I think he, ha- you know, he could do, depending on how much they want to say or acknowledge publicly about this attack and what it means, right. and how much they want to handle privately. There's definitely a, a burden on the administration from a homeland security perspective, if nothing else, just to reassure 
Um, but the question is whether he could use that kind of public statement in a deterrent manner in the way we talked before about U.S.-Chinese interactions on cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. You know, is the White House going to take a similar approach to sort of um, beat the podium as a way of establishing deterrence uh, and generating diplomatic engagement on the issue? Um, or is it just about domestic reassurance on homeland security? Right. And the other question is, should the response be a public verbal response or a quiet cyber response? Mm -hmm. I right. mean, do you put this in the espionage world or do you put it in the macro policy world? Right. I mean, one possibility, which is, you know, the way they chose to handle the Chinese and seems to have been pretty effective, is to call them out in public and to say, okay, A, this happened, B, it was an attack, not a you know, natural caused accidental blackout. See, it was done by the following entity, and we have information on that. Another possibility is for the lights to go out somewhere in Russia right. in a fashion that we would deny, um, and we probably wouldn't do an attack on the power grid just because we, you know, we have a, a, a very publicly stated set of anxieties about about attacks on critical infrastructure, but there's some thing you could do that would send a message that they would know was us and that would signal, uh, you know, their own vulnerabilities to attacks that might be a different way to send, yeah. send that message. I think there's also, we should not overlook the, you know, the historical significance of this, if this is, in fact, turns out to be what we think it is. There have been... <clears throat> Power outages attributed to hackers in the past. The CIA has even been on record attributing them, but they've never named the country or the actor. So this would be the first, I mean, this would be historic and sort of a milestone in that respect. And it really would, I think, you know, represent, you know, the Russians saying, hey, we are willing to now use this as a capability in conflict. Um, I wonder if maybe the reason it was only, you know, a small number of hours was because if you had done something to, like, blow up a generator that then crippled an infrastructure indefinitely, and cause that's you know, an act long, of war. That's an act of war, right? This kind of like walks right up to it. It's like it's almost act of war, but no, we turn the lights back on in six hours, right? And so it, it's and there may be that, that there's some calculation in that, like let's not go too far, but let's demonstrate the capability. And again, we keep you know we talk a lot about norms of behavior in cyberspace. Well, here we are, sort of like setting lines, testing the and norms, testing the norms, yeah. and that's again why I wonder maybe if the president doesn't want to come up and at least say something about it. So he's on record as saying, look, we know this happened. We don't approve of this. But then again, you know, we And then kind of, there's the what are you going to do about it question, right? What are you going to do about it? And we so. have the risk of looking like chumps. Right? I also think, you know, the, the personality of Vladimir Putin, who, by the way, still has not responded still. to my, my uh, challenge for, for a fight. He has been a little busy. Yeah, he has a new cologne, um, oh, really? You know, a, a Putin-inspired fragrance. Is it Eau de Poutine? Uh, I think it's called Leadership <laughs> One. Oh, um, God. Uh, really? Or so something like that. That's yeah. awesome. It's, uh, maybe that's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a Putin-inspired fragrance. Smell um, like strong. He, he, he has not, uh, he's still not willing to fight me. But um, Maybe he'll fight you in cyberspace, Ben. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm quaking. Um, but, um... I think the personality of the man matters here. This is somebody who has publicly denied having troops in Ukraine, you know, when there were, quote-unquote, little green men all over eastern Ukraine, 
and publicly denied sending troops into Crimea when everybody knew that, uh, you know, there were Russian troops in Crimea. And, you know, there is a quality of the brazen lie that Putin has really uh, mastered as an instrument of international relations that I think really matters here where you're dealing with covert activity. And, you know, does it count as doubt if all the cybersecurity experts think this is Russia at a high level of confidence and Putin says, wasn't us, we didn't do it, you know, and does that count as doubt or is that, you know, like Holocaust denial or, or um, you know, climate change denial, something that you just kind of intellectually discount? Um, and I think that, you know, he's gotten a lot of mileage out of just denying things that are true. And this is an example where that may be particularly vulnerable to that. Yeah. Well, look, I think there, there are some real tests for the administration and how to respond to this overtly, how to respond to it privately, how to respond to it in terms of its own um, efforts at strengthening uh, U.S. domestic infrastructure. But um, first and foremost, you know, it needs to be clear what happened here and, uh, and whether it's attributable in some transparent yeah. manner. I think we'll know that pretty soon, too. Um, all right, tomorrow, President Obama is racking out frequent flyer miles, right? He's going to hit admiral <laughs> status in his final year. Yeah, well, we will Free see. Free access to the crown room. Don't you think he already gets admiral status in Air Force One? Isn't that kind of yeah. automatic? Is Air Force One nice, by the way? Has anyone ever been on it? I've never been on it, but I do think he has a flatbed seat. Yeah, I think he's got, he's got pretty... Yeah, pretty he's fishy. Doesn't he have a shower? <laughs> he does have a shower. <laughs> he has a shower. But I kind of wonder, like, do you think, like, maybe, like, the first-class lounge of Singapore Airlines is just nicer than Air Force One? Mm. It's supposed to be pretty sweet. Yeah. All right, so let's... I bet it's got better me- food. A message to Singapore Airlines. Yes. If you guys want to fly us to Singapore... Sure. ...to test your first sure. class, we will do a live from Singapore... Live special from the first yes. class cabin, cabin podcast. Yes. Special rational security Singapore Airlines edition. Episode For sure. 51 could be all yours. <laughs> all yours. To the highest bidder. Yeah, so in the, uh, in the roundup of foreign policy uh, end of year stories, um, actually at the very beginning of 2016 was a story from Juliet Alperin in the Washington Post Um, based on an interview with Ben Rhodes about how Obama is going to focus his foreign policy efforts in the final year of his second term. And uh, the the headline and and the text of the story didn't match up that well. And I want to talk to you guys about the gaps and what we should expect from President Obama on foreign policy in this final year. The headline was, Extremism and Democratization are Key Focus for Obama's Final Year. And Ben Rhodes apparently uh, told the Post that that the president would be traveling widely, uh, working with allies to combat extremism as part of the broader White House push to emphasize their counter-ISIL strategy. So, you know, certainly this this story is is part of that effort. Um, But uh, there was nothing in the story about what the president's going to be doing to promote democracy. Uh, or to support emerging democracies. There was a mention of Cuba, which is not exactly an emerging democracy, although it may well be a diplomatic legacy for the president, the opening of of relations with Cuba. Um, You know, 
We often see U.S. presidents in their final year in office spend more time on foreign policy because they're not facing the pressure of a domestic political context, contest, rather. Um, and also because, you know, they might as well have some fun, enjoy the sure. perks of the office. Uh, President Clinton, I think, did a long and very luxurious trip to India in his final year. Also tried to solve the Palestinian-Israeli crisis. He was very, very active diplomatically, but he also, you know, did a little bit of sightseeing. And I think given that President Obama has not invested much in these first seven years in building relationships with foreign leaders... He really, he spent less time on the road abroad than most modern American wow. presidents. And so I really ask myself, okay, President Obama traveling widely, what does that mean? Is it going to be just kick back, you know, hit the beach, do some sightseeing? Is he going to try and build relationships because he thinks that's going to be important for his successor or for his legacy? And where will he focus his attention? I'll note that, you know, he's had, pres he's had senior visits from China and senior visits from India that he could return. Both good sightseeing stops as Those well as good. globally important. I want, I want to make a prediction on this score. Okay. He will not be going to Cairo to give a speech <laughs> about U.S. relations uh, with the Islamic world. That's an easy call. That's an easy call. Because you know, you know what they say about the Cairo speech now in the White House. You've come a long way, baby. Oh, <laughs> gosh. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's been to Burma twice already. Will he go back to Burma a third That's time? That's ambitious. You yeah. Know? yeah. Why three times? Maybe, maybe <laughs> he'll go by Singapore Airlines. Best, <laughs> best, best, so, first check class. out the first class cabin because <laughs> soon he'll be back on commercial air. Right. Um, I, I, I think that this, the trip to India and especially to China would make the most, would be like smart. I mean, it's, it seems to me the trip to China would also cement this idea that we are trying to build new, better, improved relations with them and would go a long Under way. Under American leadership in Asia, where right. all of America's partners in Asia are looking to the United States to help push back sure, on China. Sure, absolutely. That, that seems to me like that where you get the most bang for your buck out of that one, right, where you do that kind of a big trip. Otherwise, this, this does this kind of risk looking like just valedictory and, oh, I meant to go here and I'll check that box off. Uh, but presidents do that. What's do wrong that. with being valedictory no, 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 in your final with that. year? There's nothing wrong with it. I'm just saying if he really wants to get something out of this, um, because, you know, look, I mean, the Middle East is in shambles. He has, you know, major crises that he's dealing with. Um, you know, will he go to Baghdad one more time? I You know, there you now that American troops are actually on an upward trajectory in the Iraqi Syria Syrian right. uh, arena, yeah. Look, I I think too. This is a guy who, let's remember, when he was campaigning for president, spoke before adoring crowds in Europe. As soon as he was elected, went off to Cairo for this sort of. Um, the power of his personal engagement was seen at the beginning of the Obama presidency as a positive advantage for the United States rebuilding relationships across the world in the wake of the George W. Bush years and a sense that America was isolated on a lot of foreign policy issues. And so if he's trying to cement part of his legacy as rebuilding the American brand, right. there's something to be said for even the kind of easy, happy visit Right. Um, that's not actually doing a lot of work. But I think there's also something to be said for visits to India and China because the kind of American leadership that Obama has marketed throughout his term in office has been leading but recognizing the role of rising powers, India and China, I think, preeminent among them. 
I also want to know if he's on these trips. I mean, how many times does the conversation come up? And maybe we'll never know with foreign leaders where they look at and they say, you think Donald Trump really could be president? <laughs> you know? I you mean, know, I think, be... no, there's got to be like a basic uh, rule that you do not ask the sitting president about his successor. I, I think. Know. No, really? I think you can't. It's rude. Even like in a private moment? No, it's rude. It's like, so, who's taking over your job? You know, I just I think when they're Can like walking around like it's Sunnyvale and their shirt sleeves, the Chinese president wasn't like seriously, dude. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could see. I, I got asking, nothing for you on that. Shane. Yeah, no, I, I could see asking like, so help me understand the appeal of a Donald Trump. Yeah, but, sure. But sure. not what do you think is going to happen with the nomination? With the election? Because no. I mean, obviously, if he, you know, if Obama, to the extent that Obama, it just seems to me, if he's going around doing this, I. I would imagine that he's not necessarily thinking, i got to prep this for who I hope is my successor, successor, only because, like, she's done that before, right? Yeah. I mean, she probably has closer relations with people in these countries, in many cases, than he does. Wouldn't be surprised. So, right. And she uh, she traveled a bit, as we recall. A bit. Yeah, traveled a bit. She got some frequent flyer miles. Well, we'll see. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping he goes to China. I think that would be a good and useful thing. And Obama to China. Yeah. Maybe I would get to go. No. Wow. Not really. On the cybersecurity beat. Yeah, they probably wouldn't have me over there. Uh, All right, so let's move on to object lesson. Uh, It's the first of 2016. What objects of hopefulness (laughs) and light do you bring to share with us today? (laughs) I returned from Costa Rica the other day to find this book (gasps) on my desk. What? Lawfare? It is called Lawfare. Law as a Weapon of War. Is that by, some kind of copyright infringement? By Ord Kittry. Uh, no, you can't copyright words yeah, like lawfare. I do yeah. notice that the typeface of then the block letters of, of the word lawfare are, uh, you know, a little familiar. Um, I, uh, I would note that Ord Kittry is a friend. Yes. And a fan of, law, of the lawfare website. And I imagine that he was very conscious of uh, of his choice of title, but he also means it in a particular fashion. Yes, so I have read. I have not yet read the book. I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, and you know, one of the interesting questions that the book raises is: in what sense is uh, Kittry using the word lawfare? So you know, this raises the issue uh, that has actually been something that I have reluctantly, a debate I've reluctantly kind of come to engage uh, ever since uh, the site was founded. Uh, Lawfare, the word, means different things in different contexts. In in American right-wing circles, it, you know, refers to uh, sort of illegitimate uh, or perceived illegitimate human rights advocacy uh, that drags you know, nations into court and tries to bog them down with inconveniences of law. Uh, The Israelis use the term to refer to uh, legal challenges uh, in international organizations and foreign courts to Israeli policies, sometimes under the auspices of human rights. And I've always, you know, used the term in a somewhat more neutral fashion uh, to refer to Uh, the use of law as an instrumentality of war, and also in a kind of playful way, uh, warfare over the substance of national security law. So I'm curious, you know, what Ord is, you know, 
what the book is actually about. Mm. It, it seems to be sort of more in the in the spirit of the way that I use the term. Um, but um, I'm very curious to see what he's put together, and uh, I will. It, the, the book is from Oxford University Press, and I will uh, report back once I've read it. Thanks for sending the book, Ord. Great. Um, so uh, I can go next. Uh, so my object lesson, this may be familiar to some people, but I am right in the midst of this. There is a new documentary series on uh, Netflix uh, called Making a Murderer. Oh, yeah, I've heard about this. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so, you know, it's it's catching fire right now. It's getting a lot of press, um, hugely addictive. Just, just a quick synopsis of it. I don't want to give too much away, and I'm in the middle of it, too. Uh, it's about a man named Stephen Avery who spent 18 years in prison, uh, for a crime that you find out in the very beginning he did not commit, uh, was exonerated by this. And the first the first episode is about this just unbelievable, nightmarish, appalling miscarriage of justice, That the kind of thing where you're just sitting there screaming at the television screen. You can't believe that it happened. Uh, and then he suddenly gets caught up in another crime, and it looks like the rest of the series is, well, did he, did he do, did this, do this, this one? Wow. Um, it's really provocative. And it's, there's not a national security theme, per se, but for listeners of this podcast... I'm highly confident that the issues of law and order uh, and criminal justice will be very appealing to people. As Tip O'Neill said, all security is national. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and I'll tell you something else, too. Like, I mean, not to be too tangential in the leaps here, but, you know, we criticize other governments for, you know, miscarriage of justice and this sort of petty ways that they cover up for each other and corruption of bureaucracies. It happens in this country. I mean, it, and I think it probably happens way more than we know. I'm, you, I'm amazed I had not heard of this story before. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned this. The other day, Rolling Stone magazine published this huge uh, article uh, called Inside Gitmo, America's Shame. Ah. And I read this whole long article, which is actually a, a really bad article that I recommend readers not spend time with. But um, <laughs> This is not an object lesson. It's... Um, <laughs> I was struck, first of all, by how unashamed I was of everything I read about Guantanamo, but also uh, how much I wanted to write the article that said, look, this is not America's shame. You want to talk about America's shame, look at indigent defense in yeah. you know, the following 15 yes. states. Right. Look at you know, the treatment of mental health you know, care that we only talk about when somebody you know, goes postal and shoots up something. You know, there's there's so many things that are, you know, shameful that are part of our sort of routine day-to-day -day life. And, you know, the tolerance of conviction of innocent people for serious felonies is certainly one of them. Yeah. And Stephen Avery was poor, and had he been able to afford a really good defense attorney instead of the one that was appointed for him, uh, I... He probably wouldn't have spent 18 years in prison. Wow. And potentially be, well, the title of the show suggests that he was turned into something mm -hmm. while he was in prison. So mm -hmm. we shall see. Check it out. Making a Murderer on Netflix. All right. Well, so we, we go from dark to a little bit lighter. That's but, why I wanted to end with you. Oh, thanks, Shane. So, uh, you know, over the holidays, there's a, a sort of DC tradition um, that. Uh, as in many places, people exchange uh, holiday gifts. But the D.C. version of this is foreign embassies offering uh, often products from their countries in the form of holiday gifts to 
various um, offices and individuals. And I first noticed this in my first job out of graduate school when I was working at the Middle East Institute. And uh, the Arab embassies would send these massive, just stunningly large and uh, luxurious gift baskets of chocolates and other goodies to the Middle East Institute at Christmas time. So we, we just got through uh, the holiday period. And I noti- I've noticed over the last couple of years that the gifting has kind of declined in, in luxuriousness. And I'm, I've been wondering whether this is, you know, because of the global recession, because embassy budgets are going down for this sort of thing, or is it because there's a little more public scrutiny uh, on uh, the role of, of foreign governments in Washington or money in politics more broadly? Anyway, it's, it's always interesting, and sometimes there are controversies. You know, this year... Uh, the Israeli ambassador uh, gave as holiday gifts products exclusively from um, Israeli settlements in the in oh. the West Bank as a way of making a political statement and sent a letter along with the gifts explaining his choice. So these things do sometimes make news. I brought as my object lesson a, a lovely uh, and very modest uh, and beautiful gift that I got from the, the Egyptian embassy this beautiful box, which is um, of the sort that they they uh, produce in Egypt and sell in Khan al-Khalili in Cairo, filled with some nice Hershey's chocolate. Oh, so a little nice. U.S.-Egypt combo, yes. Chocolate and the box. Did that, did that come from the, the gallery that they closed? <laughs> so I think we should... Uh, so Tamara has given the very polite version of the... <laughs> The complaint that embassies just aren't ponying up the sort of gifts that they I mean, let's to. be honest. Well, this look, is, our this interns is a have... Small, this is a box. It's, it, just, I mean, it's a little box, but, fine. I mean, it's the fine. interns do have to eat, and they have enjoyed a lot of chocolate over the last several weeks. They are not complaining, All I right, promise I'm going to translate this into English. <laughs> Tomorrow, I think I saw this box on Etsy. We want better <laughs> gifts. Yeah. Um, so if you're a foreign <laughs> embassy... Um, and you're just sending around, you know, tchotchkes made in, in Israeli settlements or, <laughs> or boxes of chocolate. You this can, is you, not what I'm saying, you've got, a, you've got to ramp up your game a little bit here. Seriously. I mean, at least it's velvet lined. I like but my little silk. Egyptian box. Now, what do we think Singapore Airlines would do if they were giving out Well, I think at first they would send it on a plane. And here. I think and that they would... we have to go pick it up at the plane. I would actually like the massaging, lumbar-cushioned, flat-bed, first-class seat brought to my office. Sure. With a big ribbon around sure. it. Sure, or that just would be the masseuse. Fine. Yeah. All right, so embassies, next year we're going to take pictures of everything you send to any of us, <laughs> and we're going to put them on the site, and everyone's going to know if you're, if you're, you know, slumming it. Hashtag Mary Crapness. <laughs> Do not, do not be shamed. You have a year. Yeah, you, you got time problem. to think about this I, one. You know, we're going to need a bigger box. <laughs> the two of you can do this. I'm not on board with this. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. <laughs> if you're still here, you're so glad. Um, Ready for 51. Exactly. Yeah, subscribe. No, don't do that. Um, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find the archive of all of our other 49 podcasts, well, 49 shows of this podcast, at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. 
Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It helps us out a lot. And keep sending us your suggestions, your comments uh, on Twitter and other social media. We really appreciate that. The podcast is edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Kim Jong-un and the Climbers. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe just that lady hanging out in Rockville. Yeah, I think, I think, I think the lady in the, in the climbing gym was, was her own. She was a one-man band. <laughs> One person. She was, she was having a good time. She was there. I'm telling you. If you're listening, you have a career as a Kim Jong-un impersonator. You could make serious money off of this. I can't, I can't believe she doesn't know that. She has to. Like, like six out of ten people I who meet her on, on the street have to say, my this. God, you look exactly Move like Kim Jong-un. to Hollywood, Jong-un. I'm sure yeah. that there's a career in that. No, of course, our music is performed, as always, by Sophia Yan, who is not in Hong Kong right no, now. No, Sophia is She's in here. country. She is in country. I'm not, she's at an undisclosed location. I may be seeing her in the near future at an undisclosed libation location. But, uh, Sophia Yan, thanks again for sticking with us for 50 episodes. <laughs> uh, on behalf of my friends Ben Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, I am Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.